we're going to be talking about how the Holy Spirit empowers fearless mission. How the Holy Spirit empowers fearless mission. So when, when I was in high school, I used to wrestle. And so I was like, man, I'm, I'm 32 now. I, I should get back in the wrestling room and, and help out some of these young kids. And um, it's been fun, but if I have to reach down and grab this water bottle, it's going to it's gonna be painful because I'm trying to wrestle like I'm 18 years old and I have to take a couple days off and, and uh, limber up a little bit. But one of the reasons why I'm coaching or helping coach the wrestling team is because I'm not, I'm not that great of a wrestling coach. But one reason is to build relationships with students and get to know new students and hang out with them. Two, uh, when I was in high school, they would come in and help me wrestle because when you're wrestling in practice, you wrestle with the same person every single day. You learn how to slack off while looking like you're working hard. And so when you get these fresh guys coming in, you wrestle, get tired, I tap out and let someone else come in and, and help them out that way. But the third reason is I have a little bit more perspective and wisdom for these high schoolers. Because when I was in high school, I was fairly decent. I went to state a couple times, and, but I, what, I could have been a really good wrestler. And the thing that held me back was fear. Fear not to lose, fear to look stupid, fear to, I don't know, just not do as well as I think I could have done. And, and, and it showed in my wrestling. And I think a lot of us today have that problem when it comes to sharing the gospel with our friends and our coworkers maybe people in our family. We fear looking stupid, fear stepping on someone's toes, fear not knowing the right words to say. But we've all been tasked, if you are a Christian, you have been tasked with the most important message that you could ever share. It's the message of life. It's the message of hope. But oftentimes this message doesn't come out because of fear. And I mean, for me to be able to preach this, this message, it's not like I come up here and saying I've got it all figured out. Like this is a hard thing to talk about. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. We're talking about sharing the gospel with people. These are two of the hardest things to grasp and to do in our own lives. But hopefully through this message, we have a grasp of something. This is, this is tangible. This is something that we can do. If you are a Christian, this is something every one of us can and should do in our daily lives. But today's passage, it addresses that fear and it shows us why fear doesn't have to win. And the reason we don't have to be quiet in that fear is because the Holy Spirit is the one that does the work. It is the one that does the empowering for us to share this mission. You don't need to fear because the Spirit is working in us. And we'll see three ways at how the Holy Spirit empowers us in Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, if you don't have your Bibles, we have uh, Bibles in the front of the, or under the seats in front of you. Um, we're going to be looking in Acts chapter 2, and the page number is right here. If you're on your phone or on your tablet, we're going to be in the NIV version, so um, make sure you get, get in that, the right version. But we're going to be going through different passages. We're going to eventually end up in Acts 2, so it might be a second. If you want to follow along, you may want to just turn the page back to Acts 1. That's where we're going to start. We're going to see where we are now, and then we're going to jump into Acts 2 in a little bit. If you're new with us today, we have uh, new here packets that have discussion questions. It has um, 
walks you through the sermon, place to take notes. If, if you have a family, if you have kids in the back, there's questions for your family to discuss. We go through the same thing in the children's ministry that we're going through here. And this is an important thing to talk about. So, as we're um, entering into Acts 2, we're jumping in in a moment where these disciples have gone through a whirlwind of events. So the Jesus, the person that they had been following for years, who they are believing is the Messiah, who, who they're like expecting great things from, gets betrayed by one of their best friends. And he's not only betrayed, but he is arrested and falsely tried, beaten and killed. And this leads to a lot of confusion and pain even though Jesus had said a number of times throughout the scriptures, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, it has to happen, and, but I'm going to raise from the dead, they still are confused and in despair. But then we see that he rises from the dead, he appears to the disciples, he appears to a bunch of other people, giving a renewed hope, and then he gives them a mission in Acts 4. He says, do not leave, Acts 1-4, sorry, He says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He's given them a mission, but he's not saying, just go out and do whatever you need to do. He's saying, wait, there's a gift coming. There's a Holy Spirit coming. There's going to be a power that comes that enables you to do this mission. In a few verses in Acts 8, a few verses later, Acts 1-8, sorry, He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus leaves. He gives them this mission and then he goes and he goes to sit at the right hand of of the Father until he returns. Now they've been waiting for a few days. They've been sitting there, they've been praying, they've been asking for this power to come, they've been asking for, for a revival, and the Spirit comes, and, they, and it comes on the day of Pentecost. And this is a really interesting day, because this is when Jews from all over the world are coming to, to present offerings, harvest offerings to God. They're coming from all over the world, traveling hundreds of miles to worship God, and that's when the Spirit comes. And it comes in a power like nothing else. There is a mighty wind. There's flames on top of their heads. They are speaking in tongues. And it's not like gibberish tongues or like things that they can't understand. They are preaching the gospel in a language that they can understand. People who are from Africa, people who are from Mesopotamia, they are speaking the same language so that they can understand the word of God. And people come and they hear it. And Peter seizes on this moment. Now, Peter, um, he's, he isn't like, I don't think he's ever preached a sermon. Maybe he's preached a sermon. He's been sent out by Jesus. He's spent time with Jesus, but I doubt he was ready for this knockout sermon that was going to change 3,000 lives as he did. This is a fisherman. And so I hope that gives hope to some of you as you realize some of you are teachers, students, businessmen, um, parents, whatever you are, this is not something that Peter, like within the 40 days was like prepared for and cramming in. He had the spirit work and, and, he, and he just preached what he, what he had studied and what the spirit showed him. 
He was a fisherman, not a preacher. So hopefully that gives hope for you today. And so the first thing that we see here, the first way we see the Spirit empower us for mission is that the Holy Spirit provides insight. Now, Peter, and we're not going to read through this whole thing, because this is a really long chapter. I don't want to read the entire time. But Peter preaches a sermon connecting Old Testament prophecies and Old Testament characters, and he points them to Jesus. Between that, that time, like I said, he wasn't cramming. He wasn't like trying to like get everything in and read all his Bible and, and then everything connected. Peter knew his Bible. Peter knew what was in the scriptures. But in that moment, the scripture, the spirit didn't like speak for him. It's not like Peter didn't know what he was saying. But in that moment, the spirit provided insight. He brings relevant biblical teachings to mind. He helps Peter say the right thing in the right moment, and he knows what the people listening needed to hear. Jesus said this is what the Spirit's going to do. He says in John 16, 13, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all the truth. Man, that's a load off. The Spirit is going to guide you. And here's what he says. He says in verse 17, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And that's, pro- that's coming from the prophet Joel. And this is Acts chapter 2, verse 17. That's coming from the prophet Joel. This is hundreds of years before Jesus was even a thing. He says, all people. And this is a crazy concept. Because back in all of Israel's history, the spirit of God only came on like the big guys. Like Moses, Abraham, David, like this is only for the kings and for the prophets to speak to God. But what he's saying in these last days, all of us will have access to the spirit. That's an amazing thing. Not just the adults, not just the pastors, not just the prophets, kids, the lowest of society to the highest of society has access to the spirit, not just the Jew, not just the, the, uh, the non-Jews. This is for everybody. And he says in verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you and through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan, deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. He's saying when there is once confusion on Jesus and his mission, the spirit has opened the eyes that this was his plan all along. That his death and his resurrection and the giving of the spirit, this all was something that happened and was going to happen since the beginning of time and God had a plan for it. Even David, he quotes David in here in in, in a large section. David is like one of the most important figures in all of Israel's history. He says, God's never going to abandon his people. I'm going to die, but something greater than me is coming. His presence will soon be available to all. As amazing as David's life was, as amazing as like Moses' life was, or any of the prophets that we read and we look at, and we're like, man, that's that's a pretty awesome guy. David died, these guys died, but Jesus came and he is greater than all of them. And David looked forward to this, of having God with us, all of us. Verse 31, 
Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, speaking of David. He saw this coming, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you see, now see, and hear. Now the Bible had become real for Peter. The Bible had become real for his disciples. Insight was granted and it propelled mission. It it propelled this, this power. And throughout all the promises of scripture, the power of God is now available to all who call on the name of the Lord, to all Christians. Now, one reason that we have fear in our mission, why we have fear in, in, in uh, sharing the gospel with people is because the Bible isn't real to us. Maybe we think the Spirit comes through just waiting around and, and, and some power is going to come on us or we think some sort of weird photosynthesis is going to happen where the Spirit can just indwell us and we don't really have to do anything. But we see in the story that the, that the Spirit empowers through the knowledge of the living Word of God. So what does that mean? It means we need to read our Bibles. We need to reflect on our Bibles. We need to study our Bibles for ourselves and talk about it with others. We need to read it in three different ways. We need to read it for information. We need to know what's in our Bibles. We need to to know the stories. We need to know how they point to Jesus. And that comes through just talking about it and sharing. It doesn't come through reading internet articles or hearing it second-handed. It comes from reading it and asking questions about it. Secondly, we need to read it for transformation. This is a promise, this is a truth. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Bible is real because it changes us, and it moves us, and it turns us to be more like Christ. The more we read it, the more we learn, the more we grow. And lastly, we need to read it for mission. We need to see what God wants us to do and how to do it. Now, this is um, not something that we need to be experts in. We don't all need to go to seminary. We don't need to um, memorize the entire Bible. And sometimes this can be a really daunting thing, reading your Bible more. It sounds like something that we need to just check off. But this is the word of life. If this is something that's daunting to you, if you don't know how the whole Bible fits together, we have a class called the story of God. And that's a, you just go through the entire Bible, kind of what, what Peter is doing here, and you learn and you grow in what the Bible says. And if, you, if you're interested in any of that, if you're interested in this new year, like just diving in, right, SOG on the back of your communication cards, and we'll get you information about that. So the Spirit-empowered mission doesn't stop with insight into God's Word. The Holy Spirit also provides Conviction. So, um, going back to my wrestling analogy, if you're going to wrestle, you can't just hop around the mat avoiding conflict. You, can't, you have to be offensive. You have to be bold. Same thing in parenting. If you avoid hard conversations with your kids, they're, gonna, they're not going to grow. If you're in, in, your, in the business world, if you're not um, trying to make something happen, putting in input, you're just going to be sitting in the background. Wherever you are, you have to make a bold move if you want to see movement. Peter makes a bold move here. He just opens his mouth and, and, and shares the gospel. This is a challenging thing. If you want to grow in boldness, 
Some of you just need to open your mouth and speak the gospel. Look what Peter says in verse 36. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Going back to verse 23, he says this again. He says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Basically, he just goes straight out and says, you guys killed Jesus. That's a bold evangelical sermon move. Um, what he did there was, was something maybe, he just blames them for, all, for killing Jesus. And, and so their response was in verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and all the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The Holy Spirit is a, or the deep conviction is a Holy Spirit endeavor. Now, this isn't the literal group that killed Jesus. This is a group of people from all around the world that are traveling in. But what he is saying here is that your sin, pointing to himself, my sin, pointing to us today, our sin put Jesus on the cross. We need to understand that. We, in order to repent, in order to believe, we need to understand that our sin is what put Jesus on the cross. What is that? Basically, is, it's that God has created us. He has created us to live in his design. His design is a perfect relationship with him and a perfect relationship with one another. And that is a wonderful thing that happened in the garden. But what happened was we sinned. Sinning means that we're trying to live in God's design for our own glory and in our own power. We sinned, and, and, and instead of seeking God's glory, we seek to, to please ourselves. And we see this, and we've, and we've bought into this lie that, that instead of God, relationships will make us feel whole and will make us feel safe. Instead of God, we think that our work is going to ultimately fulfill us, or instead of God, our things are going to make us feel comfortable, and, and pleasure will give us rest, and that vacation will give us that escape that we need. And all these things that we're trying to do to get into God's design, but it's in our own power, we cannot please God as we do this. We cannot recover God's design on our own, but Peter says, God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. God knew we can't do this. We're unable to do this. Left on our own, we're going to mess up. So he sent his son, Jesus. He sent his son Jesus to live this perfect life that we could never have lived and he lived it for us. He pleased God. And then he died an offensive death, a death that we deserved because of our sin was offensive to God. But he didn't stay dead. If he stayed dead, it wouldn't matter. He rose from the dead, he defeated Satan's sin and death and that if we repent and believe, only then we, can we please God. 
When God looks at those who repent and believe and who have his spirit, he looks at his son. He doesn't look at the sinner. He's saying, you killed Jesus, I killed Jesus, but thankfully, instead of God holding it against us, he offers us life with him. He says, you killed me, but come back to me. He's offering us grace, God's acceptance of us at Christ's expense. If you've never repented, if you've never seen your sin in this light, I I encourage you to, to ask for repentance and talk about it with somebody here today. But if you've been a Christian your entire life, I'm hoping that you also live a life of repentance. I hear so many times that like the gospel is just the thing that gets me into heaven and, and I repented and believed, but now I just want to get to that deeper Bible study and I want to learn more and more and more, but the gospel is just kind of like Christianity 101. Yet we still live lives where we get angry when we get in traffic, where our kids disrespect us, or when jobs don't go our way, or when we stub our toes, we yell terrible things. We still sin. We still need repentance every single day. The gospel is not just something that we start Christianity. It is our life. It is an everyday repentance. We never move past the gospel. Repentance brings confidence It takes away fear because it puts us back in line with God relationally and missionally. But here's the thing. Since the Holy Spirit is the one that brings conviction, you don't have to make it happen. That's the beauty of it. We don't have to try to like say emotional things to get them to have a little tear in their eye. It's the Holy Spirit who does that. He's the one who convicts. He's the one who who helps us share the gospel with others. You just have to humbly present what God says in his word and he'll give you insight. And by the way, this, this sermon that, that, that Peter is preaching, he's preaching to highly devout Jews, okay? These are people who have traveled hundreds of miles to come worship God. They knew their scriptures. When Peter says, you killed Jesus, this, this made a little bit more sense for them. I wouldn't use that as, uh, as a tool to share the gospel in the workplace. I wouldn't walk in and just start pointing fingers about how you killed Jesus and you killed Jesus. I think we can, I wish I had more time to, to speak on this, but what he does originally is, is, is when, there, when the spirit comes on and there's confusion and, and power going on, the people uh, were like, these guys are drunk. It's only, you know, like they're crazy and they're drunk. We're not going to listen. But Peter says he engages them. He hears their questions and he starts sharing the gospel from there. And that's all we need to do is, is, is we're listening, as we're um, in relationship with people that are, are f- apart from Christ. Listen to them. Hear where they put their hopes and their dreams and engage that with the gospel message. So the Spirit empowers us by giving us insight as to what to say and to bring conviction. And lastly, the Holy Spirit provides a missional community. God ushering in the spirit led a gospel-saturated community, a community on mission to love each other and to love the world. We see after Peter preaches, they say they're cut to the heart, there's conviction, there's the word of God being preached, and they are cut to the heart, and they ask, what do we do? And he said, repent and believe. And 3,000 people became Christians. They crossed over from death to life in that moment. This is the catalyst of the start of the church. And we see in verse 42 a picture of what this first church looked like. 
So in verse 42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That church sounds pretty awesome. Like what, They were devoted to the scriptures. They were devoted to the teaching of the scriptures. They, they had signs and wonders and people noticed. They had everything in common. They sold stuff to help each other out. They had a vibrant community. They ate together. They spent time together. And people were added to their church daily. And I read this, and I know a lot of people have read this, and they're like, well, what's happened to the church today? How come our church doesn't look like this anymore? What happened? And as great as this church was, it didn't last for very long. If we fast forward a little bit to Acts chapter 6, in the very first verse, we see that um, the church is growing. And there's different sects of Jews within this church. And there's um, Hebrew Jews and um, Hebrew Jews and Hellenistic Jews all together. And the widows in there, some of them are being ignored in the daily distribution of food. And there's this fight going on about like, you're ignoring our widows. And, and they're trying to figure out what to do. That's like Jesus 101, look after the widows and orphans. And in in chapter 6, they're already messing it up. And if you look even in Corinthians, if you read some of the stuff that's going on in that Corinthians church, I mean, it's like, it's pretty messed up. Um, And I don't know if I can even say some of the stuff that they were doing in that church without asking for permission from my father. Um, (laughs) So where does it go wrong? How How did this all go wrong? Our problem is a devotion problem. What were they devoted to? Again, we look in verse 42 and the the following verses is they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to scripture. It was a people devoted to fellowship and prayer and the breaking of bread, which is, is like the worship gathering that they had together. They took church as a serious thing because they lived in a hostile world just like us. Russell Moore says the church is an outpost of the kingdom of God in miniature. It serves as an embassy and a colony of the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Basically what he's saying is if you're in a hostile country, if you're in a spiritual war, if you're in a regular war, when you see your embassy, when you see your colony, you go there for safety so you do not fear anymore. That's what our world is. We are in a spiritual warfare where the devotion is, or the world is trying to get us to be devoted to other things apart from God. The church matters greatly. It matters in the preaching. Whoever stands up here is standing between God and man preaching the words of Jesus. That matters. Each week, you should come here expecting that people are working hard because the Bible has very strict rules about leaders in the church and that they're going to be judged harshly if they mess it up. God cares about his people, and and the preaching of the word is very important. Baptism, 
These are all parts of the church, part of this embassy. Baptism is a very important thing. It distinguishes his people. It shows to others that they have traveled from death to life, that they are distinct. Membership means that you are associated with God's people. If you are a member, it's not just about, you know, getting more church emails and maybe giving a little bit more and possibly being able to serve in a, in a higher capacity. The church membership means you're associated with God's people. It's, it's past church hopping to the coolest church movement in town or to this and to that. It is meaning I'm here, I'm going to serve, I'm going to give, no matter what. There's some people in here that annoy me, but guess what? The kingdom of God is forever, and I'm going to be with them in heaven, and so I'm going to have to learn how to get, to get along with them. Membership is practicing being in the kingdom of God, being with God forever. Communion. This is important. This is open only to the subjects of the king. What does that mean? It means it's showing your membership. It's showing your membership in God's kingdom. It means you're a son or daughter of Christ. It means you are remembering something that happened to you. If you are a Christian, you take communion to remember what God did for you. That he was betrayed. That he, his body was broken for you. That his blood was shed for you. That's something you do as a Christian. If you're not a Christian... And there's nothing to remember because it hasn't happened for you. Communion is open to the subjects of the king. And lastly, the gifts of the spirit are available to all his people. Being a kingdom citizen means that we look different from the world. The church should look different because we believe in something different. Misplaced devotion prevents us from letting the Holy Spirit humble and change us into kingdom citizens. Kingdom citizens are marked by being free from pride, free from false judgment, and free from needing to get our own way. Five Oaks, this church right here, we have everything we need to connect with God in a powerful and fearless and world-impacting way. We have the Spirit to instruct and transform us through the reading and preaching of his word. We have the spirit to convict us of sin, turning from selfish pursuits to pursuing reconciliation with God and one another. We have the spirit to be a community on mission, loving God, one another, and others preaching the gospel. In a moment here, we're going to have a time of, I can't think of the word, response, thank you. (laughs) We're going to have a time of response. And the time of response is uh, for you to, to respond to what you heard this morning. And so we have communion up here and in the back. And again, communion is for those who are Christians, those who remember what J- Jesus has done for them. For some of you guys, that means that uh, you just need to take God instead. Don't take communion. Take God if you're not a Christian. Uh, another thing that communion uh, symbolizes is his reconciliation with us but it also symbolizes reconciliation with one another. Part of the mission of God is messed up when we are not reconciled to one another. And I encourage you instead, if you have, are fighting with somebody, if you need to have reconciliation with somebody, if you need to um, say you're sorry to somebody, I would say do that before you take the Lord's Supper. Uh, we have candles up here, and, and it signifies uh, if when you light a candle, you're praying that, that the Lord lights um, a fire in someone's heart. 
Pray for someone specifically. Pray that you have the boldness and the fearlessness to go and preach the gospel to somebody else. If you need prayer, there's prayer stations in the corners. There's uh, people to pray with you. If you've decided to repent and believe, go pray with those people. Maybe this is the first time that you can take communion. Let's pray.